0: Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about this sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. So let me just tell you guys, when we're going through this, there's a number you can text. Can you put that, that number up there for me? There's a number that you can text, and it's really great to ask questions, and we want you uh, to go ahead and be able to do that. As we're going through this, if you have questions that come up, and, and sometimes, just to let you know, the reason I read you what I wrote for our daughter is I have a lot of questions actually written throughout the Bible, so I, I just write it in there. I, I know if, if you're like, you don't mark up the Word of God, and I go, well, I, I I do. I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy. We dig and we ask questions. And, uh, and so I fully anticipate my daughter getting these Bibles and going, man, Dad had a lot of questions. I don't know if he knew anything, but he just had a lot of questions. And I would say that it's a good way to live in your walk towards God and with God to be able to ask questions. Because when you wrestle with God, you're not far from Him. You can't wrestle from far away. Text in questions, and at the end of the service, we'll wrestle with a few of them, and then we'll reach out to you during the week. This last week, we talked about um, what it's like to bring a sacrificial gift to Christ, remember? And that word, or that sentence, that question that was like, what is it that God wants? Remember we talked about that? That if we ask people this all the time around Christmas time, like, what do you want? What do you want? So I'm going to pray, we're going to ask that question, and then we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 2. This whole idea of last week was the wrong messengers, this week is the wrong direction. It actually feels like God's going in the wrong direction in this story, and it's great news. It's like really good news, because we all go in the wrong direction as well, and he did that on purpose. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God, And how grateful we are to sing with the angels, holy, holy, holy. You're perfect and wise. But it's really hard in our pain and suffering to understand these things. So Jesus, I just pray that your saving power of leading us into freedom tonight and not actually delivering us from all the pain we're experiencing, but leading us into the freedom of where it is to have joy in the midst of these times and to see light in the midst of darkness and to experience the thrill of hope, what we call Christmas. I pray for that tonight. So God, for many of us, the storms in our lives need to be calmed, and I pray that you would do that as you're the Lord of the storms. And for others of us that are way too comfortable, there needs to be some storms in our life, and I pray you'd be gracious enough to be with us in those storms, but not calm them. Just be with us tonight, and it 's in Jesus name amen amen, so what is it that God wants is what we asked last week this week um, I want to tell you a few Christmases ago, Lisa and i we don 't we don't guess what each other want anymore, okay because like just to be real honest with you, the first birthday that she had, I got her a Nintendo Wii. Okay, well not the first birthday she had, I'm sorry. First birthday she had when we're married, okay? First birthday she had, I don't, I don't know if she got clothes or something, but the first birthday when we were married, I got her a Nintendo Wii with all these games and I bought on Craigslist like a full and then you can't return it and I got a big problem and you spent a lot of money on your own birthday present on her birthday, okay? So I just to let you know, I learned early on that like we just need to ask what do you want? And you go, did you think she wanted a Nintendo Wii? No, I wanted a Nintendo Wii. <laughs> and uh and we're doing okay. Two kids later, we're still we're still going strong. <laughs> a few Christmases ago, Lisa asked me, What do you want for Christmas? And I told her, and um one of them was a book. And the book is called Letters to Children. And it, it's a book about the letters, and as you can tell, she followed through and got me this. Uh It's a book, actually, about the letters that kids wrote to C.S. Lewis, and then the letters that he wrote back to kids. Now, he had this thing where he thought that adults were really bad literary critics for his stories, and so he would sometimes write adults back, but he would always write kids back. This is Lewis. And he's the one who wrote the Narnia stories. If you think that type of author won't make it, I think he made it fine. And this is a compilation of the letters that came in to C.S. Lewis and then his response to them. And, and throughout here, there's like funny pictures that kids draw. And, and the humility of Lewis when he's saying to a kid who says, why would you stop at seven books for the Narnia series? And he goes, why don't you write an eighth and maybe a ninth and I'll be the first to read it the humility that he just writes back to these kids. But but there's a letter that I always remember in this book. And it was one of the few adults that wrote that got responded to, and it was a, a child's grandma. And she wrote C.S. Lewis and she said, I'm worried about my son or my grandson because my grandson loves uh, Aslan. So if you know anything about the Narnia stories, Aslan is the Christ figure. Loves Aslan a little too much, essentially, and said, I think that I think that he is falling more in love with Aslan than Jesus. This is what the grandma said. So Lewis writes back essentially, and um, no one disses Aslan, okay? And Lewis writes back and he just says, look, it's not a problem. In fact, the perspectives of Jesus that are out there are really unhealthy perspectives right now. And if he learns to love Aslan, when he gets to know Christ, when he gets to know Jesus, Jesus will be fuller and more alive in the fulfillment of everything he learned about this lion. So if you can picture that, if you can, like, it kind of like boggles your mind a little bit and you go, no, but we want them to know. And what he's saying is this He's saying, look, there are things we hold on to early on in our formation that give us images and glimpses of God. And then in Christ, it's the fulfillment. In Christ, it's full and it's like, oh, every, all the little, blips on the map and now I see the entire thing, right? A land unexplored. And so he says this and I remember reading that and thinking it's profound and it's so C.S. Lewis-like and I don't think I'll ever forget it. I haven't forgot it. And, And one of the ways that we do this with our kids, not like, okay, learn about Aslan and don't worry, we're not teaching your kids down there like, Okay, there's these lions, you're gonna love them more, and then they're gonna love Jesus later. We're not teaching them this. We're I'm just telling you we all do this thing where we hold on to something that's insufficient for salvation, and then Jesus kind of comes in the scene and fulfills and gives meat to the bones and like flesh and is like God in flesh. And one of the ways that we do this is with with Piper, she'll cry out in the middle of the night and say, I had a nightmare. And we'll say, okay, what was your nightmare? And she, you know, last night was she had a nightmare about snakes. And, um, and so one of the things I'll do is I'll, I'll grab a stuffed animal, put it by her, be like a lion. You can't have like a unicorn to do this with, okay? You can't have something that's, that's not powerful. I don't know if you like unicorns, but they're not real. But we need something real and powerful. And so I put like a lion or a tiger or something there. And, and I say, okay, this is Aslan or what do you want to name this tiger and whatever. And I said, and this lion's protecting you from those snakes. And She was, oh, okay. And she's learning. And then when we take her to the zoo, guess what? She gets pictures of what type of force this animal actually has. So we, we do this thing where we give insufficient to people in order to, whenever they're mature enough to be exposed to the real thing, they, like it fills up, but it's the real thing. And, and here's the problem, is that uh, like our whole life... A lot of us have been handed this insufficient God, to be honest with you. Hasn't made a difference in your life? If he's made a difference, it's taken a really powerful worship service. It's taken a lot of emotion. It's taken a lot of people finding out about your life. All this stuff. It just feels like we're given this insufficient view of God growing up. And if we'll let ourselves, when we see Jesus the insufficiencies fall away, and we go, this is the one who leads us to freedom. (laughs) This is the real God. This is the one who does this real thing of leading us to freedom. But if we don't, if we just hold on to the stuffed animal version of God, just to the Aslan and never to Jesus, well, then what we'll find is we will go through many Christmases not knowing the saving power, the thrill of hope. And for real, there are people in this room, that don't know what it means to be led to freedom by the person of Jesus. By the person of Jesus. When I was growing up, <clears throat> some of the concepts of God that came out were this. Can you throw that slide up? Uh, power. I think I think there's a slide that shows this. Is there not? Or oh, strong, okay. Strong, strength. Remember I talked to you about how when like I went to... The altar one time and I thought I was going to turn into this sons of thunder like this powerful guy obviously it didn't work it still doesn't work in my life and and strong was like what is God God is strong so here's and a view of God I had here's another one forgiving God is forgiving God <coughs> forgives us of our sins now here here's what gets a little strange is you go well if he forgives why does there have to be a debt that's paid and and like you start to grow into these like, well, well what, what is forgiveness, and what does it mean? Why does God have to forgive me, and can't he just sweep it under the rug? And as you grow up, the concepts feel insufficient until you come to Jesus. And here's the next one, obedience. There's a point in my formation as a person, and it was in the youth group f- phrase. It was very odd. I was a very odd teenager, Okay. Middle school, I got picked on all the time, and then I got my braces off and my head shaved. It's not a pretty picture, but it's prettier than I was before, okay? I got my head shaved all in one summer, and then I had friends, and I go, I don't know what to do with this. I'm just going to have girlfriends and friends all the time, okay? This was awkward Preston. Awkward Preston, okay? and But during this time in youth group phase, I remember being like, okay, you got to obey, you got to obey, you got to obey to experience the strength that you learned about from God and to experience the forgiveness you learned about from God. You got to obey, got to obey, got to obey. And so these insufficient, very strange, going to bring comfort sometimes, but not life-changing concepts of God were handed to me. And I just want you to know, you're not excluded from this and neither were the Israelites. Like Neither were the people of God that were there for the arrival of Jesus. And they grabbed a hold of laws and prophets. So this is why it's really important that we realize Jesus is the fulfillment. It, it was asked, like, 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 many times, is Jesus Elijah, is Jesus the new Moses? Like, who, who is this Jesus? And and he appears in this weird scene on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah on one side, Moses on the other, and to show he is the fulfillment of the laws and the prophets. And so you have people doing this, what you and I do, grabbing a hold of concepts of God, but never letting Jesus fill it out for us and letting the insufficiencies fall away. You have people doing this all throughout, all throughout the Bible. And in Matthew chapter two, this is exactly what happens. So it looks like Jesus goes the wrong direction. It looks like you're waiting for a savior that's just going to arrive on the scene. Is going to plow his way through um, the authorities of earth. And he goes backwards, like he goes to Egypt, which reminds the Israelites, by the way, of slavery. He goes backwards, it feels like. And he does so at the authority of another king, threatening the situation, not at the authority of his, like his own authority. He doesn't move. It just feels awkward. It feels like it's the wrong direction the whole time, the whole time. And what I want to tell you is this the Israelites were holding on to some figures that God is gracious enough to show, no, my son fills this up, and those figures were insufficient, and my son leads you to freedom. So if you're holding on to any figure, any hurt, anything that feels insufficient when you think of God, and you go, it doesn't change my life at all, I just want you to jump in the story of Matthew chapter 2. So we know that before this, uh, the wise men arrive on the scene and they're like giving sacrificial gifts to Jesus. And King Herod is threatened by what's happening. And the wise men, they're the king makers, right? They came to the doorstep of King Herod. And when they're there, King Herod knows I'm out. Someone else is in. He's threatened. Now, this is Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, 13 through 18. Let's go back to verse 13. Thanks. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So this is the second time an angel of the Lord appears, okay? An angel of the Lord appears and says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now, if you are an Israelite, if you are a Jew, your fleeing to Egypt doesn't sound right to you, okay? It's like, and go back into the bonds of slavery. It just, it, it sounds very weird. So if you can think about this for a second, as if you are the Joseph or Mary figure, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. Rise, take the child and his mother. Now, in in Jewish times, it was normal to say, take the mother and the child. So it was normal to put the person of importance or authority first. And then like, this is, this is how genealogies work. And, and this is how it's supposed to be worded. And Every commentary that I've read on this said there's something funky about the way this is laid out, as if the centerpiece is Jesus, the child, right? And you go, well, it's not funky. This is like my 30th Christmas I've celebrated, my whatever. It is weird to the people that this is happening to. It's very strange. But the way Matthew writes this is intentionally. He's showing us this is about the baby. This is about the baby. This is about what the baby's about to accomplish, okay? And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Now, Egypt was about uh, 75 miles, the border of Egypt, 75 miles from Bethlehem, and then about 125 miles to the town that they would have been in. So this is not like, hey, we we get in the car and go, even if you're driving, it's gonna take you hours. If you're going by camel if you're going the way that they would go it's taking forever right this is a this is a command that you have to follow intentionally like and you have to continue to follow and remain they remained there until the death of Herod this was to fulfill what the lord had spoken by the prophet out of egypt i called my son out of egypt i called my son so let's pause Remember, we're talking about slowing down, anticipating the arrival. So many weird things are happening at this point that we have to say, um, this is what, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, the word for fulfill there is actually talking about to fill up, okay? So the word, it's different than the words that are used whenever we say, and this, um, This came to pass. This is a prophecy that's supposed to come to pass. This is a different word. This is to fill up. So when we talk about Christ filling up our insufficient views of God and doing away with the insufficiency, this is what he's getting at. This was to fulfill, to fill up what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is out of Hosea 11. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Now think about who is Hosea referring to? Like who's he referring to at the time that this is written? Is, is he referring to Jesus? Because it would seem like that the name Jesus wasn't like, and the idea of a Messiah in that context, they knew him as, but, but like what, what is he referring to there as my son? And what we know that's most likely is that he's referring to Israel. So now you have this whole uh, shift in paradigm that you read this and you go out of Egypt. I called my son, referring to Israel, going back to Exodus one and two. Whenever uh, the Israelites were led out, were, were uh, called out of Egypt. So you have this, this like all this taking place, and you have Jesus becoming almost a new Israel. You have Jesus becoming the one who is the sufficient Israel, where, where Israel was insufficient before. Israel was a type of humanity, a people of God that fell short, and yet you have Jesus that's a new way of living, a new humanity. And this prophecy actually is not filled up to the brim. So if you picture a cup, when it, when Hosea spoke of it, it's like halfway full. And now when Matthew speaks of it, it's filled to the brim. It is the established Now it's established as this. So he's reaching back and saying, in the same way Israel was called out. Now Jesus, uh, Jesus is doing something new, okay, which is really good news to us. We'll talk about that in a second. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Okay, so this is a dark time. There are babies dying. This is a dark time. And then it continues. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. In Jeremiah, all these prophecies, by the way, are really fascinating because Matthew is painting a picture of Jesus that is supposed to do away with the old figures that people were holding on to. And in this situation, it's not just Jeremiah. By by the way, the only two prophets that he identifies when he quotes them in the book of Matthew are Jeremiah and Isaiah. So he has a respect for Jeremiah. But it's not just Jeremiah. It's not Hosea. it's, it's, It's someone other than that. That they regarded and esteemed. And this is what it says about what was taking place there. With Jeremiah's um, prophecy saying that the Babylon- Je- Jeremiah was writing about the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. Now this is what it says. Since he dealt, Jeremiah, since he dealt primarily with, the second, oh, with this event, he probably did so here too. This was primarily what he was writing about. Poetically, he presented Rachel as the idealized mother of the Jews, mourning from her grave because her children were going into captivity since Rachel died on the way to Bethlehem, according to Genesis 35, 16, and 19, which obviously ties in nicely with what's happening here between Egypt and Bethlehem and Jesus' journey. It feels like the wrong direction. You follow me? It feels like that. In the same way that Jeremiah spoke of Rachel mourning for her children, because when, when uh, Jewish men would go into captivity, they would pass Ramah, a city, and that's where on the border of that city would be where uh, uh, mothers would weep for their children. In the same way, whenever King Herod called for all the boys to and under to die in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions, it was a night of mourning. A night of mourning. Now here's what's fascinating about all this. Why in the world would Matthew include all these details? Matthew does this thing even in the beginning of the genealogy. He starts his book with a genealogy. Okay, this is the part that a lot of people skip over and they just say like it's the lineage of Jesus. He starts with a genealogy, and the way he writes about a genealogy is he writes about it as the generations of, and he's writing about it using words from Genesis, the book of Genesis, and that Genesis is actually giving us the generations of people that now establish the story of God, okay? So you have this going on. He writes intentionally using intentional words, and then you have something really weird with this wrong direction thing, that you have Jesus going into Egypt, and you remember that Moses, Moses was delivering his people out of Egypt. You remember this? And even if you don't have a whole lot of Bible knowledge, like you're like, I remember seeing some cheesy movies they remake every three years about this, right? About Moses. and Yeah, yeah. So follow me there. So, so Moses, the story of Moses delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, the commission of God. But when Moses is born, there's a king, a ruler, who's threatened by Moses. And so he calls for boys to be killed, baby boys to be killed. And what we have is Jesus is, the stories are mirroring each other. And it's as if Matthew is saying, this is happening. And all the esteem that you have for Moses, all the esteem that you have for him, Christ is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater one. So whatever picture you have of God that Moses has established for you, Christ is actually the one leading people into freedom. So Moses led the Israelites into freedom and was establishing a people of God. Jesus leads every person into freedom and is establishing a new people of God, a new way of living that we can now say that when you trust in Jesus in a Jesus looking God, that you have a new life, you 've been reborn, you 've been transformed, you have a new way of living, not by forcing obedience on you, but because the spirit of God has done some transformation work. Jesus leads us into freedom, so you have that happening, and then you have after this in, in chapter three of Matthew, Matthew chapter three, Matthew jumps right into the baptism, okay, right into this scene with water. What we know is that when Moses led the Israelites into freedom, he approaches the Red Sea. You remember this? And the Red Sea, he just, he just like splits the Red Sea open. And we find that when Moses does that, something was going on in the mind of the Jew, and something is now going on in our mind when we see the baptism. We see this. And then we see that Jesus goes into the, the desert, and he's tempted for 40 days. But we know that Moses was wandering around for 40 years. Do you see the parallels? Here's the parallels. All these are happening now. Here's what I want to show you. What this means for us is huge. And we can't just brush over a text like this and say, "All right, let, let's just like get something superficial and excited." This actually is really exciting when you understand what's happening. So, here, here's what I want to show you. The implications for us show us what Moses was doing for humanity and for the people of God. Jesus does at an even greater level and fulfills what we hoped God would be doing in the first place. And he does away with the insufficiency. So let's go back to the first one. Go back to the first one. Moses taught them that after freedom, there was the law. Jesus teaches us that after freedom, there's forgiveness. Moses taught them. So after freedom, They get the Ten Commandments, okay, after freedom. This is really important for you to know. And by the way, when you read the first statement, you're going, well, that's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. What I'm saying is it gets better. Like like the, the Jesus in this story is way better than any perception of God, any person that's representing God because those always fall short, always. And so in your mind, Right now, you have some perception of God. If it is not in line with Jesus, it will fall short. And Jesus will fulfill the greatest desire that you have, but maybe not in the way that you were hoping. Okay? So let's talk about this. Moses taught them that after freedom, there was the law. Jesus teaches us that after freedom, there's forgiveness. When Moses enters into freedom or leads them into freedom, there's the law. There's the Ten Commandments. And, and you need to know, like, God doesn't give the law and then give you freedom. He's never done that. It's the freedom, and then he gives the law. Now, when Jesus gets to the—when Matthew's writing about Jesus and gets to that point where the Ten Commandments would have been in the uh, layout of the story, we're at the Sermon on the Mount now. We're, that's where we find ourselves. And at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in heart for they will inherit the kingdom of god blessed are the broken blessed and he goes on and on and on and what we find is his whole entire ministry marches around forgiveness the 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 call of jesus's ministry is forgiveness this is what we find it's very different than the way we treat one another. So follow me here. The way we treat one another is we do this thing where we say, I've been led into freedom, whatever happened, I've been experiencing freedom. Great, now we're gonna set up some structures that if you fall, you're gonna feel condemnation. I I call this the cycle of condemnation, okay? That if you say, I used to drink alcohol, I used to be an alcoholic, and it just consumed my life, I'm never gonna touch that thing again, and then you have people surround your life that they say, don't ever, don't ever, don't ever, don't ever, don't ever. And you feel the condemnation. And what it feels like is you've just been led into freedom by Moses. And there's the law right in front of you. As opposed to if someone says, hey, I'm really proud of you for bringing that up. And I want you to know the forgiveness you have from us and the forgiveness you have from God. I want to talk about that. That freedom leads there. That's where Jesus leads his people is into a land of freedom and forgiveness. This is where freedom le- leads. And, and I just want you to know the way we treat each other has to be the Jesus way. That forgiveness, when people find freedom or are on their way to finding freedom, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the Jesus way. Giving them law right in front of them is this old Moses way, the insufficient way. insufficient. And it feels like God's going the wrong direction when he does this, see? It feels like that. Because you go, but what if they screw up again? We got to show them that this is wrong. And and the answer is, hey, forgiveness sets you freer. Condemnation gets you more in bondage. It's the cycle of condemnation. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, by the way, that if you find yourself surrounded by people who say, if you screw up, if you screw up, if you screw up, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, you'll do it. Like, you're so focused on it, you're going to do it. And, and it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you'll never actually feel like Jesus freed you. And a lot of churches operate the old way, not the new way. And in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which we've talked about before, Christian, the main character, walks into a room and is told by the interpreter uh, that this is a person's heart. This is a person's heart. And there's all this dust on the floor, and um, someone comes in to sweep it up, and it's choking them out. It's choking Christian, and he's coughing. He goes, what is this? And they said, that's the law. That's the law. It chokes you out. You just try to clean it up like this. Without any grace or forgiveness, this is what it does. And then the character of grace comes in and sprinkles water all over the dust and lets it settle And then slowly sweeps it up. And he realizes, and we all realize as the readers, we all realize this is right. What Moses did was fine, but it's not the Jesus way. And it'll never be great enough to be the Jesus way. You follow me? Let's go to the next one. Moses taught them that God is strong enough to split the evil waters in two. Jesus teaches us that God is strong enough to cleanse us of the evil inside of us. Jesus is the greater Moses. In in the ancient Near Eastern mindset is that water was evil. We see this all throughout the Psalms and we actually see this in the Exodus story very much. That it's very symbolic when when God splits the sea in half and allows it to stay split in half and their feet to stay dry. So they're not even getting any evil on them is how some rabbi um, commentators were talking about it, is that it, they're not even feeling like evil is getting on them. They saw water as evil. And this is a lot of influence of other ancient and eastern cultures. This is going on as well. But the power of seeing that split in half and they get to go and then, to go through and then it collapses on the enemy it's like god's using our enemy to crush the other enemy and there's so much celebration but water a lot of times for the ancient eastern mindset represented evil okay now piper hates swimming so for her she's in that mindset for like forever I, we did swimming lessons it did nothing we're gonna try again and see what happens but it's like scary uh, for the jewish people so when they see that, they see God cutting this evil in half, this monster that threatens them because they can't control it, by the way. And, and this is also why when Christ calms the storm, there's worship that starts to take place because for the Jews, they're going, who has power over the evil? It's not just the storm. We, we just don't like we think it's just the storm and that's cool. No, no, it's over the evil. Who has power over this? And Christ does. Jesus teaches us that God is strong enough to cleanse us. So in the baptism scene, Jesus has no evil in him. He has no evil in him, but yet he gets baptized. It's not that baptism, when we come out of the water, is like all the evil's out. What it's representing is that we are now alive in Christ. So we have been buried. Our old us has been buried in Christ. We are alive in Christ. And we are a new... um, We're a new being. We're we're now new in Christ. This is what it tells us. And it is an act of cleansing, right? It's an act of cleansing that's talked about throughout the New Testament. And the Jesus way shows us God has the power to cleanse you. God has the power to do this. He doesn't just have the power to control evil forces to keep you safe. He does have that power. That's an insufficient God, though. He has the power to... To cleanse you. The arrival of Jesus makes this declaration. It's huge. A huge declaration. And here's the last one. Ready? Moses taught them that disobedience prevents God's promises. We know that Moses actually wasn't even able to go into the promised land. Jesus teaches us that his obedience gives us the promise of God. That his obedience his obedience, his obedience. So Moses wasn't even able to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. And if you hold on to that story without Jesus, you're going to have a very weird view of God. And maybe you do. Maybe you have a strange view of God. Maybe for you, the Jesus story is so radically different from God. This is why you have a hard time calling God Jesus. Jesus. This is why here you'll hear me use the term a lot, a Jesus-looking God, is because your God will look like something, like someone. To the Jews, their God looked a lot like the prophets in the law, and Jesus comes on the scene and he dies, because the way that he explained the God of the universe, the way he explained him, the way he explained his father by using words like Abba, Daddy, the way he explained this turned everything on its head and they go, he's a heretic. That's not the real God. That's not our perception. And they'd rather hold on to the Aslan perception or the stuffed animal perception when the real lion of Judah is like right there before them. And here, for me, this, this part gets me. This part for me is really hard to understand. John, can we have your team come up? We're going to go into a time of response Shortly, but I, I want to tease this out for a second. Moses taught them that disobedience prevents God's promises, but Jesus teaches us that his obedience gifts us the promise of God. Christ's obedience, when we walk in Christ, when we're made new in Christ, when we trust in Christ, however you want to put that, we are now alive in Christ. See, so You understand, we're not alive in the old us doing better now. That's not a thing with Christianity. We're alive in Christ. We're a new creation, and the voices of shame and condemnation that come our way, and those sort of voices, uh, those voices will try to derail you from the life of Christ that you have. But we're alive in Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, and we'll talk about this next year. So next year we're doing we're we're gonna dive into this a lot, but in the New Testament you'll see that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our righteousness in Christ. And so many times we think the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin and throw it no no, it's actually to convict us of the righteousness we have in Christ And this righteousness means because of his obedience to the Father, he lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died. He did this. And when we're in Christ, we are now, as Ephesians puts it, we have the inheritance that God would give his own son. We have eternal life with him, right? We experience the blessings of what it is to live in relationship with God. We experience the ministry of reconciliation and we can now gift that ministry of reconciliation to people in Christ. Our promised land is not just heaven, like our promised land exists now, and in Christ we have this. What happened in these five verses changes everything. So if you're, like, if you look at this through the eyes of someone who's a Jew, You go, wait, Jesus is the better Moses, and he leads me into freedom. And you go, how does he do that? This is how. This is how he leads us into freedom. So this is what I'm going to do. John is going to play a song about the presence of God and what it is to experience the presence of God. And usually we go to the side and we go for prayer, but I think what we're going to do now is we're going to actually meditate for a second on what it is to be in bondage. And if you've, ever, if you've never experienced Christ leading you, leading you, like, like walking you out of that place, this is a really good exercise. It's called imaginative prayer. We're going to do this together. And, and in a second, I'm going to ask you to stand and close your eyes and we're going to do this. But instead of going to the side, we're going to take this Sunday night to be very, very intentional, personally with Jesus, of, of, you can respond with worship. You can turn next to the person next to you and ask for prayers, fine. But I, what I would encourage you to do between you and Jesus, that your, your way of honoring Him in this story is to let Him lead you into freedom, but to think that through, to think that through. That when we're in youth group, we sing songs where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Now, I like that song, okay? I'm all about that song. It's, don't go there. Because it's high tempo, and it, it like, it makes me want to, You know, like dance a little because it's youth group style, right? I like that stuff. But like to actually sit there and think through whatever you thought God was up to in your life, if it wasn't freedom, it wasn't God. This is the whole central idea of that passage. Whatever you thought God was up to in your life, if it's not freedom, it's not God. He's up to freeing you. And you go, oh, so he can give me the law? No, so he can give you forgiveness. And that can keep you free. Because that's the most loving thing he can do. That's the most loving thing he can do. And you go, is it just so he can protect me from evil? Is that why? No, in fact, you're going to experience pain and hurt and evil. But that he can cleanse you from evil. That's called sanctification. He can do that. And he will do that as he frees you and as he loves you well. And you go, yeah, but then he's going to like, withhold his promise if I mess up. No, because the freedom you experience is because Jesus is, you're following Jesus and he's leading you into life. And so you're just going to get all the promises of God in Christ. This passage is dynamic, right? Five verses. And then, and like we, and we think Christmas is about gifts under a tree. This is, this to me is amazing. It's amazing. So will you stand, stand with me. I know tonight felt like a, In depth Bible study, and I am so thankful for it. So thankful for it. I want you to close your eyes. If this is strange for you, let me just remind you that if you ever miss someone, if you're away from them and you're not able to be with them, a lot of times when you close your eyes, you think about them. Well, this is how we operate, anyways. If I ask you to tell me about your family, you would tell me kind of images and stories, you wouldn't tell me stats and logic. And this is what we're going to do now. Close your eyes and picture yourself in a prison and the thing holding you, only you know, only you know that thing. Some of you, you're going to go, no, everyone knows that thing. Okay. But be honest with God and others of you, you would go, I don't have anything. That's called pride. And those bars are strong. Those bars are real strong. So, picture what is it that, and then I want you to picture what is it that got you there? Do you remember time got you there? You feel imprisoned. That's the thing that led you into bondage. I want you to imagine if Jesus walks into that prison cell and this would be your response. Jesus, you're going the wrong way. (laughs) The free people are out there, but don't come in here. You're going the wrong way. And he would respond with Matthew chapter two, verse 13. No, he goes into where you're in prison. And I want you to imagine him opening that door taking off the shackles and for some of you those shackles are have been on for so long that you actually can see on your wrist like there's bruises takes off the shackles frees your leg from that ball and that chain and he just says follow me and you may know that following jesus is a path of freedom And whatever you think God is up to, if it's not freedom, it's not God. And just tonight, walk out of that shame-filled cell and respond in worship. And take a seat. We'll do a quick Q&A. Blake, will you come up here, my friend? Blake is part of the biblical studies team, and he just looks so dapper (laughs) all the time. Always. Okay. What questions do we have? And by the way, I really appreciate us being a faith community that wrestles together and not that is um, here with blind faith. So go Thank
1: ahead. Thank you guys for sending in your questions. We had some great ones. How do we reconcile the God who loves children with the God who would flee and allow children to be slaughtered in his place?
0: Yep. So I, I'm just going to let you know, I wrestle with these sort of questions a lot. Here's what's interesting about that passage in Jeremiah. We're talking about fulfilling, filling up, and that passage is used not as a way to say that it was prophesied about the Messiah that this would happen. The passage is specific to Jeremiah's time with those who were being um, overtaken by, by the Babylons. It's specific to that time. It's used as an application, okay, as an application, not as 100% prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. So it is specifically used as an application by Matthew, saying, this reminds me of this, and that prophecy is now feeling more full. I I say that to tell you this, God didn't tell Herod to go do these things. And the question kind of goes back to why are there deaths around us of innocent children and those sort of things. And I would say because there's evil in man's heart, and this is a picture of the depravity of man when it's threatened by the Lordship of Christ. Doesn't make it easier, but I just don't want you to sit there and think that Jeremiah's prophecy was about Jesus, and that had to happen in order for that to be fulfilled. That's not what's happening there.
1: Um. Just kind of adding into that piece, it's the basic question I'm hearing from this is kind of like, why does God like uh, bad things happen to to good people or kind of this dichotomy uh, that we see uh, between that of um, you know these kind of acts of violence that we see in the Bible and then also these descriptors of God's grace and love. Um, Going off of that premise, it's just really adding on to what Preston's saying. And there's a complexity to these types of stories where the Bible is also you know, a book of theology, and it's kind of these descriptors of history and how they've happened. Uh, just because this event happened uh, doesn't mean it's condoned by God. Okay. Uh, there, there's many passages you, th- you see throughout the Bible um, that are done, and, and it's a description of people trying to either, A, live out God's um, acts in this world, or it's just a description of broken people. And, and really, I think that's what we're drawing out of these kind of uh, stories of Herod uh, and his acts, but then we also have um, that sort of uh, placed up against like these other stories where we're like, well, I don't understand how these two meet. It's not necessarily going to meet. And I think that's where we're kind of asking ourselves, like, how, so what happened to Herod in this mm-hmm. case to, to bring him to this place? I and mean, it's kind of the absence of God. in in that act and then we see like well what is Jesus and Jesus is someone that loves children uh, that's supposed to draw us closer Mm. to that concept and what is good this is of God is is that of of loving children and it's saying like this happened Mm -hmm. these Old Testament passages we're referencing we're not gonna say they didn't happen um, but this is like the intent of God and that's Mm. kind of the Bible is our way of figuring out what is the roadmap closer to God
0: that's really good it's a great question by the way and we'll be faster on the next one okay
1: what if you feel you're being obedient but you're not experiencing the promises of God
0: faster right we'll be faster on this one Um, well I I want you to know our trust in Christ leads us into the promises of God not your obedience And by the nature of the question makes it feel like you're like i'm doing all the right things but i'm not experiencing all the right things and i want you to know your trust in christ so i would ask you can you reframe the way you think about god not to say obedience isn't necessary um, in your walk with christ but when you trust in jesus you become obedient so when i trust in lisa i become more faithful to lisa and I start to learn who she is more, when I trust in her. If I just told myself, be faithful, 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 and I'm trying to do all the right things, I'm running around trying to be the perfect husband and clean the dishes, do whatever, and not yell at the dog, and you know, all these things. Then if I'm doing that, and then I'm like, but I'm not experiencing your love. Well, it's because I'm so busy doing those things, hoping that that Initiates experience as opposed to say like sitting and spending time trusting, letting that initiate obedience and faithfulness, and out of that, like the love is in there. So I, I'm just trying to let you know, it's not your obedience that's gonna make you feel the promises of God or in, inherit the promises of God. It's Christ's obedience, and I think that's what the story shows us.
1: Yeah, I'm just validating that point, and you know, it, it's our obedient, Our obedience is, is simply. An act of us following Christ. It's not necessarily like through this action I will get uh, X equals Y. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's these moments in our lives where uh, it's we don't know why it's happening, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's really uh, this is a point where it's just asking us to press into like what are what is the purpose of these acts and it's to build right. our relationship with Christ sometimes beneficial things happen in this world as a consequence of those Mm -hmm. um, but not necessarily always
0: yeah thank you for the questions i would just say this jesus was the most obedient trusting in the father person and he died on a cross and his friends left him so promises of god you may need to reinterpret what the promises of god mean um and so we can talk about that later thank you lord Thank you, God, that, um, that you do go in what we would think is the wrong direction. You go into those areas of slavery that remind us of slavery in order to lead us out. And Thank you for taking all of our false images, our, our insufficient, premature images of who you are and telling us that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So whatever questions we may have about you, God, if we've seen Jesus, we see you. So so we will wrestle with what does that mean with our other ideas about you. But at the end, let us rest in what we just sang. Breathe into the caverns of our soul where it's empty and dark or where we're at and we're scared. And I just pray that, God, you would be ever present. In Jesus' name. Amen.